media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. As you're seated this morning, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Last week we looked at about 20 plus verses. Uh, and we're going to look at about 20 verses this morning. Not quite 20, but almost. And your Bible, again, probably has this broken up to about three different sections, and that's great. Uh, in fact, there's one section that we'll cover today really quickly that we actually just uh, maybe less than a year ago spent eight weeks of study on. We had a whole series on what does it mean to deny yourself and follow Christ, to lay down your life and, and be his follower. So so every one of these are worth very much us looking and spending time with. And yet I one of the things that we're taught is to to relate the scripture in context. It is so easy for us to take scripture out of context when we don't see what the setting was, who the audience was, what the point was. And so when we come upon something like this, when there's kind of a, a rapid fire events that are happening, it is really good for us to keep that in context and say, okay, look at this passage and how it just goes from this to this and this, and that it's really all one thing. I hope you saw that last week as we took three sections that easily could have been preached individually at length, and we put them together so that we see this one redeeming thought that was there, the sufficiency of Christ. Well, this morning we begin to do that, and we're going to cover the rest of chapter 8 this morning as we begin to see the rest of the story or the follow-up of what happened last week. Perhaps one of the most overused terms in all of uh, advertising, ocean view room. Have you ever booked an ocean view room? And sure enough, if you leaned out the balcony and held on, you saw a little sliver all the way in the corner, and sure enough, there was the ocean. And yet what you had in your mind when you booked that ocean view room was not seeing a little sliver as you were out on the balcony, but that you were going to, hey, every morning we're going to open up the curtains, and we're just going to be able to see the beauty of God's majesty and his creation out there. And you get there and all of a sudden your perception of what you thought and the reality of what was delivered were worlds apart. Well, folks, this perception of reality happens a lot in Christianity. And it's because we kind of take things and we want to make a God that is kind of our God. And so the God that is, and then seeing the the beauty that he accepts us, that he, he calls us his own. And so this morning as we begin to, to, to see this this morning, this difference between perception and reality, we see that it happens in the lives of the disciples. When we get to Mark chapter 8, it is the physical middle of the, his gospel. Uh, and it's the spiritual middle in, in one way, because it's really, it's, everything is leading up to here. But it's not the middle of Jesus' ministry. When we get to uh, this chapter Two and a half years of ministry has happened. There's only six months left. There's only uh, about two months of, uh, of ministry left in the next two chapters. And then the last six chapters of the Gospel of Mark is all that last week of Christ. So think about it. Eight chapters. There's 16 chapters. There's eight chapters that cover two and a half years. The next two chapters are going to cover two months. And then six chapters that are going to cover the last week. Remember that we said that one of the favorite words of Mark is the word immediate. 
Because he's on a race. He wants to get to the crucifixion. He wants to get to the resurrection. He wants to get to this hope of what this life of Christ was all about. And so that's why he's kind of, it's not only the shortest gospel, but he's in this urgency to get to that place. Well, when we think about that this morning, we come upon a story that has kind of made a lot of theologians, a lot of scholars, uh, maybe a lot of you kind of scratch their head. And it's this miracle that seems to have misfired. Look at Mark chapter 8, verse 24. And he, that is Jesus, looked up and said, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus heals this guy. And he looks up and the, the guy says, I see people, but they are they look like trees walking. Jesus comes along and he's continuing his ministry. And uh, these people bring a blind man to Jesus. And, and he goes down to the ground and he spits in the ground. He makes kind of a, a little salve or something out of the mud. And he puts it on the, the guy's eyes. He says, what do you see? The guy says, I see people like trees, like trees walking. Well, people probably didn't look like trees, but to him they did. In other words, this blind man could begin to see, but he wasn't seen clearly. What happens after that? Look at verse 25. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, now, why a lot of theologians, a lot of scholars, a lot of pastors, a lot of Christians have looked at this and gone, oh my goodness, you know, did Jesus need a do-over? Did, you know, what was the purpose? Was Jesus just not on his A-game that day? And I'm not trying to be in any way uh, silly about this, but we really do wonder because we don't ever have other miracles that were really kind of a two-step process. So what makes this one different? Why did Jesus kind of apply the salve and to the guy's eyes, and, and he could see somewhat, but he couldn't see clearly. He does it again. Jesus does it again. And then he can see clearly. Why was this progressive? Was it a lack of power? And I'll give you the answer to that. No. <laughs> Jesus very much, he didn't even have to use mud and spit. He didn't have to use anything. He could have easily just said the words, and this guy would have seen clearly. So what is the purpose of this? It's because when we begin to read the rest of it, Jesus is using even this miracle to talk about us and our limited understanding. He's about to introduce something that has been spoken of before to the disciples, and yet he's going to make it more apparent than he ever has, and the disciples do not see clearly. There's a difference between their perception and reality. Now, I don't know about you, but there's a lot of times that I can have a preconceived notion when I pray about something, how God's going to answer that, how God's going to do that. Do you ever get that? You, you know, you're praying about something and you're going, okay, God, you know, here's what you're going to do. You're going to heal this person. You're going to make this marriage restored. You're going to, you know, whatever it is, and we're praying about it and we're earnest and we're praying what we believe is a very, very earnest and, and good prayer. And in our mind, we have this preconception and then God does it differently sometimes drastically differently. Guys, we are really big into wins and losses. Would you agree that as a society that we put a lot of emphasis on W's and L's? <laughs> whether it's sports, whether it's life, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, we are a, we desire to be a winning people. And even in Christianity, that kind of bleeds over a little bit that we like wins. We like people that win. 
And we want a God that wins. And I've introduced that because today there was this mindset that we've talked about oftentimes with the Jewish people, and it was what they expected in a Messiah. By this time, again, two and a half years into the ministry, the disciples do confirm, you you are the Christ. You're, you're the son of the living God. We confirm that. And we're going to see that pronounced today in the statement of Peter. And yet what they had in their mind, they had a preconception of what a Messiah would be. Uh, Messiah was going to be a majestic Messiah. It was going to be a, a warrior Messiah. Thunderbolts in each hand, ready to go to war against evil and against, in their case, they thought the Roman government and the oppressors of the Jewish people. They thought of a kingly Messiah. They thought of David, but a greater David. To put it in our terminology, a David with more wins. And yet, this Messiah, as he comes, is really different from their preconception. Look at verse 27 and 28. Okay, this this miracle, this two-step miracle, where he sees kind of people as trees first, but then he sees clearly, remember that. It's important. Verse 27. And Jesus went on to his disciple with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others... One of the prophets. Again, how long is this into the ministry of Christ now? Two and a half years. They have had plenty of data to collect, time to collect the data, and kind of get enough information that people had begun to make his their determination of who Christ was. Some said, oh, he's a, a crazy person. That's where, believe it or not, Jesus' family, except for his mother, still is. His brothers and sisters going, okay, we, we think that, you know, this is the family member we don't talk about a lot. Because we just think that perhaps he's a little bit crazy. I mean, his own family. Others had made some kind of other radical kind of preconception in their own mind. But many and most of the Jews had come to the preconception that if this was the Messiah, this was the answer to their political problems, not just their spiritual problems. That the oppressors of the Roman government at that time, that this Messiah, this warrior majestic kingly Messiah would come in and bring them victory. You and I, we've talked about this almost on a weekly basis as far as just this perception. And yet Jesus is not this, you know, fulfilling of that perception. And so he asked, who do you, who do people say that I am? John the Baptist, Elijah, other one of the prophets? And then Jesus asked the most important question that you and I will ever entertain in our lives. But who do you say that I am? Not your grandmother. Not your daddy. Not a close friend or relative. Not your husband or your wife. Who do you say that I am? It's an amazing thing that God has called us into community as a people of faith. A people of faith. Our identity is a people of faith. And yet... It is very, very, very individualistic. It's amazing. We don't come to Christ as a people. We become a people as we come to Christ. Does that make sense? 
It's really important for us to make that distinction because there's a lot of people I've talked to over these years of ministry that said, well, you know, uh, you know, do you know Christ? Are you a Christian? Yeah, you know, my daddy, my daddy was a preacher. My daddy was a preacher. Our grandma, you know, oh, grandma, she prayed for me all the time growing up. And that's good and that's wonderful. I'm glad if your daddy was a preacher or if grandma prayed for you or something like that. But this question is a personal question. Who, who do you say that this Christ is? And after two and a half years of ministry, that's the, that's the question that he puts out there. Okay, here's what, you know, people have and they've collected this data and they've made this determination. But you 12 guys, what determination have you made? Who do you say that I am? In many ways, we could preach a sermon series just on that question. Because ultimately, this is the question that each one of us personally, ultimately, each one of us will answer. And it won't matter what everybody else thinks. But this morning, this has great application and great importance to us when we look at the whole context of what is happening here. Verse 29 again, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. In many ways, this is kind of the the moment everybody's been waiting for. Q and a couple of other graduates, you know, the, the turning of the tassel, brother. You're waiting for it. <laughs> you get engaged, you date for a while, and you're just waiting for that, that pastor to go, and you may kiss your bride. You know, it's been building up, you've been anticipating, it's on there, and now you actually get to live out that moment. Well, that's kind of what's happening here two and a half years into the ministry of Christ. Who do you say that I am? And, and Peter responds. It's not the first time that there was recognition that he was the, the, the Messiah, the Christ, but he pronounced it, you are the Christ. And Peter gives this great pronouncement, and then it happens. Then it happens. Watch. Perception collides with reality. Verse 31. And he began to... Teach, very important word that we would just skip over. Two and a half years, he's still teaching, and he's about to teach one of the greatest lessons ever. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Folks, this is the furthest thing away from the Jewish perception of a majestic Messiah, a warrior Messiah, a kingly Messiah. A, a King David multiplied many, many, many times over just with more wins. Let's not hide the fact that we like winners. We do. We like winners. And we're kind of geared to that. And this didn't sound like winning. What in there sounds like winning unless you get to that last part? And I don't know that they ever heard the last part. Because the first part so collided with their perception of reality. I mean, ask yourself. If you had booked a room, Ocean View, and you've been waiting, especially after this long COVID time, just to get back to the beach or to, you know, have vacation, 
and you had booked it for your family. Carly and I, we were booking a vacation last year for the whole family. It was our first time that we are going to get the whole family together, and we were so excited. Of course, we had to cancel it. But Carly, can you imagine what our mindset... I can imagine your mindset... <laughs> I would be thinking, I'm paying this much money for for this ocean view. <laughs> but you wouldn't be heartbroken because your joy is seeing your kids. And man, we, 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 we booked this ocean view room and the kids are going to be able to go play and we're going to watch them on the beach. And we're going to, and I know a mama's heart for her kids. And I know the daddy's heart for his pocketbook. And so it's one of those things that, you know, I'm, I'm going, okay, we would be disappointed. It would be hard when reality collides with perception. But please don't underestimate that when Jesus began to teach what the Son of Man was going to have to do, how it collided with their perception. It's hard for us because we look back and we say, of course this is what the Messiah was. But that was not their perception of Messiah. The picture that they had in their mind of a greater David. Just the David that has even more wins. But what is the reality? What is this reality that now collides with their perception. Look at verse 31 again. Suffer many things, be rejected, be killed. Does that sound like winning or losing, just being very honest? No. But it's okay. We don't mind losers. No, we love winners, guys. Let's just be honest. Our human nature, we gravitate toward winning. For our own lives, we want to win. Even in a spiritual context, it's hard for that not to bleed into our mindset. Yeah, that doesn't sound like winning. That's not the description that we would give. Okay, winning is suffering many things. And you know, of course, there's going to be rejection. In fact, it's going to be like a total rejection. And you're going to be killed. Verse 32. And he that is Jesus said this. What's the word? Plainly. Uh, up to this point, there's times that, that Jesus would say, you know, that the temple was going to, uh, that, he, you know, the temple would come down and it would be built back up in, in three days. And a lot of people are gone. What do you mean? The temple destroyed and built again? No, don't you know that it took them decades to build that temple? How can you rebuild it? And there was a lot of symbolism that Jesus had used up to this point. But now he's teaching them plainly. Forget kind of the word pictures. Forget kind of the symbolism. Now he tells them, this is what's going to happen to me. We're two and a half years into this three-year ministry, and I want you to know and start learning what's going to happen to me. He spoke plainly. It's the only time that Mark ever uses that word. The mystery was unveiled, and there it was in plain sight. No more hidden meanings like in John 2.19. Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. No more kind of symbolism. No more figurative speech. This was reality. And it was a reality that Peter and the disciples did not like. So what does Peter do? Well, it says that he begins to rebuke Jesus. We see that word rebuke, and that would be strong enough for us to even think that we could begin to rebuke Jesus. But it is much stronger in the Greek. It is a strong, aggressive word. You know what it means? 
It's the same word that's used when Jesus rebuked the demons. You think that was a pretty strong word? It's the same word that we begin to see in this rebuking of the Pharisees. I mean, it's a strong word. Same word that is used in verse 30 when it says that Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one at that moment. So, so Mark is writing this and, and, and he says that Peter begins to rebuke Jesus. He goes from confessor, thou art the Christ, to counselor. Here's what he does. Stand up for just a second. He's talking there. And the word of rebuke and that he's going to do literally means that he turns his shoulders to face, or Jesus' shoulders to face him so that he begins to talk to him. I mean, it's one thing if we're just kind of sitting there and we're just kind of talking. The word used is that he turns, he rebukes, he physically grabs the shoulders. You, you can sit down. <laughs> I mean, when my daddy would turn, if he turned my shoulders and began to talk, I wouldn't say this is a suggestion. I said, this is a rebuke. He's trying to straighten me out. I mean, can you imagine me? I, you know, I, I've told you before, I, I love the Braves. Can you imagine me having set up the stands and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, the, they end the inning and maybe Freddie Freeman just struck out. And I'm going, Freddie, Freddie, Freddie. And I, I've been up here, I've been watching you. And I think you're dipping your shoulder. I think you're dipping your shoulder. My, my professional opinion of all my years in professional baseball, I think you're dipping your shoulder. I think that's why you're striking out. Number one, how ridiculous that would be. But what if I went down on the field and I grabbed his shoulders and I turned him and said, Freddie, look, come on, right here. Here's what you're doing wrong. That's what's happening here, guys. Let's not, you know, again, we, we just preach it in context. He wasn't just saying, hey, Jesus, you know, I was thinking and my perception is this and the reality of what you said is a little bit different and I don't know, I'm struggling with it. That's not what is happening here. He takes Jesus aside. The word used, he takes him face to face and he rebukes him. Jesus, you are wrong. Is it possible to get the person right, thou art the Christ, and get the plan wrong? In other words, can you be a Christian and you got the person right? And yet as you're living out your life, when perception and reality collide with one another, would it be beyond us to go to God and say, God, I think you got it wrong? And you've never done that, I'm sure. I'm probably the only one in this room that has ever struggled with that. Now, the reality is that from our perception, there's a lot of times that God is doing something strange in our life. He's doing something very different from what we would think, what our perception was. And at that time, we may get the person right, but all of a sudden, what if we begin to argue with the plan? And we actually go to a point of, Maybe you and I, we wouldn't have the opportunity like Peter did to actually take the shoulders of Christ and, and rebuke him face to face. But but we can do that with our attitude. We can do that with our, our our fellowship of Christ. He agreed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, but he didn't agree with the plan and the path of what it meant to be the Messiah. Now watch the reaction of Jesus to Peter and the other disciples in verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. <laughs> 
and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Could that be the foundation of a lot of our collisions between perception and reality? I mean, could this collision of what we perceive that God's going to do in a certain situation and the reality of what actually happens, could it be because of what Jesus just said here? You are not, Bobby, you're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting your things on the mind of man. Of course this makes sense to you because this is how man's mind works. But I want you to set it on the things of God. I want you to think about the temporal. I want you to think about the eternal. And so he rebukes Peter. In fact, he gives the strongest rebuke to anyone in the Gospels. Um, He calls out Peter the same way. He uses the same word. There's the same tone there that he used in Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. When uh, Remember when Jesus was out in the, the desert place and being tempted by Satan? And there's that temptation in Matthew chapter 4. And he says, Satan, get out of here. This is the same phrase. It's the same word. Satan, get behind me. Jesus rebukes Peter because of, this, of this, his proposal of somehow Jesus could accomplish what God has asked him to accomplish without the cross, without the suffering. Folks, that is how central the cross is to the work of God in our lives. It's not kind of a, an aside. It's not just kind of an additional fact. It is everything. It's what we just say. It is everything. Every promise, yes and amen, by the finished work of Christ, which included death on the cross, so that there could be resurrection on the third day. That's where the victory has been won. The good news is not good news if it simply ends in death. And yet I don't know that they ever heard the last part of that where he would, where he said that he would rise again in the three, in three days. Look at verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples. Again, we see that word teaching saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of man and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Guys, let me complete the story. Don't just get stuck on this one page. Read the next chapters. See what God is doing here. But all Peter could hear is death and defeat and failure. Look at verse 33 and 34. See, we're going up, this is Jesus talking. See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And it ends right there, or does it? What's the last part of that verse? And after three days he will rise. Is it possible to trust God with the rest of the story before we read the rest of the story? There's this thing called faith. <laughs> it says in the Bible it's impossible to please God without faith. And yet when we have a perception and reality collide and we thought we were going to have this grand view of the ocean in this ocean view room and yet we have to hang off the balcony and kind of look down there and we see a sliver 
all of a sudden, we're, we're disappointed because we had an expectation. There's something that we built up in ourselves that, okay, this is what we get for this. And many times, folks, in the spiritual sense, we do have this God as a genie that we can just kind of, you know, okay, God, I prayed about it. You didn't answer my prayer. So I answered it. I just didn't answer it in the way that you thought, but I answered it in an internal perspective. I answered it in a way that is maturing and growing, and, and I answered it in a way that in the big picture, it is best. See, that's our application, I believe, that we can draw from this. That when our perception collides with reality, when Jesus doesn't respond to him like we want him to respond, that we can trust God. We can just keep on trusting God. What does he say right after that? When we look at this in context, all of a sudden, that eight-week sermon series starts to make a little bit more sense. Because... Now that famous passage, verse 34, and calling to the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Do you see that in context now? That Peter's perception is you're losing. This is not what we want. And he says, no, dying to yourself, denying yourself, taking up your cross means that you truly, as much as you can, you abandon your own perception so that you can see that the reality that I'm presenting is one of your growth, your maturity. Are you struggling with that this morning? That somewhere along the way, your perception of what God should do, could do, is different of what God is doing? It's a really hard place to be as a Christian because we believe the person. (laughs) We just struggle with the present plan or at least what it looks like from our perspective. And so I really get this. I I mean, I'm right up there with Peter. I'm going, Peter, you left out this verse or this line or these words. And what Jesus is doing is patiently, tenderly, lovingly teaching. Next time your perception and the reality of life collide, try to get in your mind and your heart at that time that that you have an ever-loving God who is patiently, tenderly, gracefully teaching you. I'm not saying that it will make all the sting go out of that difference of perception and reality. I'm just saying at that point, at least we can put it in perspective. Okay, God, you're, you're being very tender with me. You know, you, you, things are about to happen that are so awry of what Peter and the disciples thought. And, and yet, Jesus' intention was not to scold them. He did rebuke them, but that rebuke is even a part of the motive. The motive was, I'm teaching you. I'm teaching you. So maybe the prayer this morning, instead of God, do this or do that. Perhaps a biblical prayer, a scriptural prayer that reflects this. God, make me teachable. Could that be a... Do you think that that's a prayer that could line up with the scripture this morning? God, make me teachable. Help me to be a learner. I think it's right in line of what Christ was accomplishing there.
And what, what do you think that if you had that prayer, if we prayed that, God, make, make me a learner, give me a heart in the mind of a learner, do you think that it would begin to change our perception, even if that reality stays the same? Isn't that amazing how that works? That all of a sudden, ocean view room, hey, at least we're at the ocean. Hey, at least we have the family around. And if you lean right there, yeah, I can see it. I'm learning. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. Father, help us to understand that sovereign God works sovereign plans. That we can't use that word sovereign to describe you and, Father, somehow distant it from that you have a sovereign plan that you're working. And yet, Father, as we begin to, to see Christ here teaching the disciples, even two and a half years into this ministry, preparing their hearts and their minds for this difference between what their perception of a Messiah was and what the reality of what your son would do. That he would die the most humble of deaths, be spit upon and mocked and scorned. And he would do it for me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Father, thank you for working your eternal plan even when it collided with the perception of those that were following. So Father, we just sing this song this morning. Father, we pray, make us learners. Father, allow us to be teachable. And Father, hear our praises this morning, that in the midst of our misunderstanding, the midst of our confusion, the midst of, of Father, of just feeling perplexed at times, that we love you. And, and Father, we just want to follow you. We praise you because you are the God who is sovereign over all things. And we sing this song just to, to praise you for who you are. And we pray all this in the one that made it possible, Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.